0: G'day and welcome to the MedEd Source, the podcast from the Department of Medical Education at the Melbourne Medical School. My name is Brett Vaughan. I'm a lecturer in clinical education in the Melbourne Medical School and I'll be your host for today's podcast. On today's episode, we're talking supervision in allied health and to do so, joined by Simone Gibson. Welcome, Simone.
1: Hi, thanks.
0: And Associate Professor Claire Palermo. Thanks Welcome, Claire. So much. Thanks Simone, get you to start off uh, if you just want to introduce yourself for our audience.
2: Okay. Uh, well, I'm Simone Gibson, and I'm a Senior Lecturer in the Department of Nutrition and Dietetics at Monash Uni, but I'm also Director of
1: Education for the School of Clinical Sciences at Monash also.
0: <laughs> Fantastic,
1: and Claire. Yeah, and I'm Claire Palermo. I'm the deputy director of the Monash Centre for Scholarship in Health Education.
2: I and also have,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I kind of also have a, a life history in nutrition and dietetics as well. Um, been in Monash 16 years, and have been ke- one of the key things I've done there is been responsible for the practical placement program for part of our dietetics final student placement. Mm.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yep, and um, I guess my role has mainly been around clinical placement and clinical education as well.
0: Fantastic. So we're talking supervision in allied health. So, opener, what does supervision look like in allied health?
2: Okay, I can start. Um, it Look, it can really vary according to what sites the students go to and it can vary according to professions as well but my understanding is it's probably more variable according to um, the hospital or site setting rather than the profession but I'm not as familiar with with other students on placement it's just been from what I've observed when I was a clinical educator way back in the day and so what it looks like is um, a group of students go Uh, to typically a a hospital placement in my case, but um, they also, our students also go to food service and public health settings as well. But in the hospital, um, they're typically assigned to a supervisor, and that supervisor will have either one, two, or sometimes three students. And there's probably an overarching site, student super, supervisor, coordinator sort of person as well, and there's sort of a hierarchy of, of educators
1: within the system that feed up information back to us. Mm-hmm. And how does, the, how does the learning happening happen day to day? Yeah, I
2: think the learning is um, the students uh, go and practice, their like do their thing, be... Dieticians, um, and they're exposed to situations that are hopefully um, matching their needs, so simple patients with simple tasks at the beginning and then gradually building up as they become more experienced. And there's peer learning, so they learn off each other and our students are actually taught how to do that as well and they're taught how to give feedback to each other and they'll also be observed by their supervisor, who will then provide feedback. But again, we we really encourage student-led feedback rather than the supervisor saying this is right, this is wrong.
0: So, how much does a, or how much opportunities does a student get when they first go into a placement? So, one of their early placements is it just an observation, or are they still getting a chance to interact with a patient?
1: I think one of the things that's different about allied health compared to Particularly to medicine is they actually have less time on clinical placement before they're work ready. So in Allied Health, we're actually making our graduates ready to hit the ground running, be registered, to work independently um, as soon as they leave our universities. So that uh, makes the placements, um, I guess, higher stakes. Um, And there's potentially less time for students to kind of mosey around doing observational stuff. They kind of have to hit the ground running.
2: Yeah, yeah. So we need to really prepare them as much as possible in the classroom before they start placement. So, like, basically our philosophy is if we can teach it in the classroom, we'll do that. And then everything else um, they can experience on placement. Mm.
1: So, and again, it depends on the placement. So uh, for the more um, uh, project-based placements or placements where the students are assigned a program of work where they'll participate in a range of different activities for the benefit of the organisation, so it could be a quality improvement project that they're leading, it could be around, you know, uh, assessing... For the dietetic students, they do a public health-type placement, so they might be assessing the healthy choices in a range of different food outlets, for example. Um, they are, they hit the ground running. You know, we give them those skills. You know, the, the, the only thing that they are left to do is function in that work environment. And so they've got the project management skills. It's really just the implementation of those things. So they are left quite independent for those kind of project-type placements from day one. Mm. And it's a much more hands-off supervision where they might only touch base with their kind of lead uh, supervisor once a week. It's not this kind of watching over the shoulder for those type of placements. It it is a little bit different, I think, in the hospitals.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But I think one of the challenges is, like, what is as prepared as possible and Mm. having the academics and the students and the supervisors who are at the placement site understanding what preparedness for placement is um, and... And, the, and then as, as the placement continues and the student skills continue to grow, what is competent at the end? And, um, and that's probably where most of the conversation needs to happen.
0: So going with that preparedness idea then, how do you, I suppose, educate the clinical educators about... At what point the student's coming in, what the expectations are, and then what the expectations of the clinical educator is to get them to that point of competence or to graduation.
2: Yeah, I think it's... The main thing is having good relationships with our placement educators. Um, if there's not good relationships, then uh, I don't think it's possible to have shared expectations mm. because
1: they will diverge when relationships break down. Yeah. And it's about continual communication, and that comes with that relationship. So it's about not just speaking to them two weeks before the students arrive. It's a year-long relationship that happens... um, and you know it's developing that shared understanding of you know where we're at recognising where each person's going to you know that or coming from that our job is to train students their job is to improve the health of the population you know understanding that we're all coming at this from different objectives but we've got this mutual thing called students that we can work together on.
2: Yeah I would say that that relationship is actually even longer than Mm. a year I would say that they continue yeah yeah. yeah. take years and Mm. The best, like I'm just reflecting back on when I first started at the university, and there was a, a placement educator or supervisor. I think we're using those terms interchangeably, <laughs> um, who kind of like I, I struggled with, and the students struggled with them, and um, and there was a little bit of angst happening. But over the years, we've managed to sort out what each other's expectations are. And now she is one of our supervisors that gets nominated for our Inspiring Educator Award every year. Mm. So, and I think that that is a direct result of that good relationship that the university and placement side have built.
0: And can you talk through the ratios? Because they tend to be a little bit, or one of the differences at least, particularly medicine, nursing and then to allied health, where... um, yeah, one student, two students, three students to a single educator. Mm-hmm. Benefits, drawbacks to that, that type of model?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think, look, my, I reckon two to one is, is ideal um, because the students can go off in pairs and learn from each other in a less stressful kind of atmosphere and I think they learn by watching as well as by doing and sometimes you know they might have been told by the supervisor oh you need to do this you need to do that and then they see their peer needing the same thing and and everything kind of goes the penny drops them for them Um, and it also frees up supervisors time when they're when they're off in pairs. But it's also not too much for the supervisor to keep track of those two students. So that's for the hospital setting. But I think, Claire, you would say it would yeah, be different cool. for mm. um, public health.
1: Yeah, so if they're in an independent-type project, they're actually better in bigger groups because there's less uh, um, issues with a, um, a, a larger group having you know conflict. They can you know, work as a team rather than as a pair. Uh, and they do tend to support each other's learning rather than having to go to the supervisor. They're much more confident in groups of fours and fives. Um, but it is, it is interesting, because and I'm not sure um, where it came from, but it is quite historical in public health to have the one-to-one thing. Um, yet in medicine, you know, ten mm. medical students just go wandering on a ward and no-one <laughs> seems to worry, whereas if that happened in allied health, everyone would go, whoa, whoa, what's going on here? Um, so that, uh, that's interesting to explore that and, and challenge that and, you know, that, that is an issue around, that's been an issue mm. around our capacity um, and our ability to grow.
0: Do you think that sort of model is sustainable? Just taking your point, Claire, about capacity and being able, particularly building our um, allied health supervision workforce, is a two-to-one, three, even three-to-one model sustainable?
2: I reckon maybe we should be looking at different settings mm. rather than different models
1: mm. um, and looking at... The, the role-emerging workforce. Yeah. So, what you know, what is the allied health workforce of the future need to look like? You know, we know hospitals are on... You know, we don't really want them to exist. They probably will have to in some capacity, but our... Our workforce is changing and that ambulatory care, you know, yes, we, you know, talk the rhetoric and prepare students for that, but we typically don't spend a lot of time in those settings. I'd agree with Samara.
2: Yeah, and with the advent of AI and algorithms and care pathways, a lot of decision making has been removed from... That's. It. I'm not saying all. Like obviously, you know, but there are like things before, like prescribing a supplement to someone who's had a fractured and off or something. Before the dietitian would go and see them and assess them. Now they go on this screening pathway, and the food service department will just give them a supplement, and the dietitian doesn't have to be involved at all. So, um, yeah, that. Uh, the the workforce is really changing and we we need to make sure our graduates get jobs yeah and there's less in hospitals more graduates coming along so we need to think about well where are they going to be working and hmm. private practice online hmm. um yeah
0: hmm. i going to take that private practice one because i know a few professions are grappling with the same issue um, particularly the allied health professions and seeing it as a way of managing that workforce issue Again, what do you see as some of the the benefits to being out in a private practice doing the placement? What might be some of the drawbacks of that?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I look. The the benefits are that more people can be reached, and I think the profile of the profession can be increased. Um, in the past, I would say, like for our field of nutrition, I would say naturopaths have a higher profile, like a, a, a more renowned profile than what dietitians do. If they said to the general public, what's a dietitian do, they'd probably say, oh, I'd, I'd see one if I need to lose weight. But if I have a multitude of health problems, I might need to see a naturopath. Um, and and maybe one of the reasons for that is dietitians existed mainly within the public healthcare system. And unless you were sick, you might not come across one. Um, so so that is good. We can reach more people because, you know, diet is one of the, is the single most um uh, what is what's the word? It, it's the single biggest risk factor for yeah. early disease, so early death. Um, so more people do need to be reached, but the problem is that um, it's usually the students who don't get the top marks that don't get employed in the hospital or you know in, employed by somebody else where they're likely to get support. So it's made potentially the weaker students that are forced into private practice and then they have less support. So depending on whether they open up their own private practice. And, I mean, I
1: think we... We, our professions haven't potentially moved with these times as well. You know, we've said, oh, no-one should go into private practice on entry into the workforce, so we'll just forget that it's happening and not do anything about it. Whereas I think we need to look at what do we need to do to support... As a profession, what do we need to do to support our graduates? You know, is it, is it stronger clinical supervision structures that exist, you know, when students or graduates go into the, the, the public sector... Or, or what is it that we these graduates actually need to be able to do a great job and and promote the profession and make you know make people healthier yeah. and do you think it's the responsibility
2: of the professions or of the university because i mean i i kind of feel like we do still have a responsibility in that we take these great we take these students in and we're trying to get more numbers and then they graduate and we just like dust our hands off and go right that was another year next sort of thing so and it's possibly both Mm. it probably is both um how you do that without funding um and how you 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 can squeeze more content into an already very crowded course that where you have to have a minimum amount of placement days it's um a a little bit of a problem Mm.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I agree. I think it is both um, both people's responsibility or both organisations' responsibility. But I think it, it's the, it's ultimately the professions, and I talk about the profession very broadly. So it's the, you know it's the members of that profession that are in the community to support those new graduates, put their hands up to be clinical supervisors. It's the professional organisation that could potentially provide continuing professional development or some kind of framework for clinical supervision. It's it's regular regulation and registration kind of responsibility as well. In terms of you know they are ticking off clinical supervision if they are having it, and that their safety and efficacy kind of conversations been had about practice. Um, so I think yeah, it's not it's it's complex, but um, yeah, it's something we I think we need to think about in allied health as our numbers are growing and as as our uh, the need for us in the community. Is there, but it's perhaps not necessarily realised by the community yet.
2: Yeah, and and I think also um, it's I don't think it's well understood by our professional community, and and I think that some of uh, some professionals are kind of resentful of the amount of great p- uh, students that are graduating every year, and I know that when I've gone out to see students on placement, some of the placement supervisors have said you're taking in too many students, you know, why are you taking in so many students? Um, We've got too many dietitians and I always go back with, well, oh, is the rate of obesity decreasing, is it? Um, (laughs) And, you know, is is Australia's nutritional health improving? And um, because the point is there are too many graduates for government-funded jobs, but... That doesn't mean to say that we don't need more health professionals
1: addressing um, non communicable chronic disease. Mm. I mean, while the mental health system has been under scrutiny more broadly, you have to only have to look at like the psychologists and they have an amazing clinical supervision framework for their first year graduates and have who are basically set up to work in private practice and that's the prime you know, a big primary place of employment. So I think there's lots to learn from others in Allied Health and um, yeah, I think it's only a matter of time before we grow in that space.
2: Yeah, I, and you know, like I think the the internet has changed a lot of things as well because people can access a lot of information for free now and do it themselves, and that's where psychology is kind of at an advantage because you need that person to person contact, and I would say that all of us do, like mm. all of our professions mm. need that too. Um, don't get me wrong, but. I don't know if the general public perceive that. Mm. Um, you know, they, they get some information online.
1: Oh, right, you know, this I'll have turmeric and mm. that's going to fix or my... I'll plug my diet into this web base and, you know, website and I'll get out, you know, what I'm having enough of and what I'm not having enough of and I'll be fine kind of thing. But yeah. in fact, we know behaviour is a lot more complex than that. Mm. Yeah. Thank goodness, otherwise we wouldn't have jobs. <laughs>
0: that's right. <laughs> and so to get to those jobs, one of them, Aspects is clinical supervision, mm-hmm. and I want to take you to your systematic review that was in Medical Education twenty nineteen. What are the what are the characteristics of an effective clinical supervisor in allied health?
2: When we were synthesising the results, we, we really were thinking we've got these intrinsic skills or qualities or attributes that were basically around being a nice person, Mm. being friendly, welcoming, approachable, um, and that, we found in our review, was an overwhelming um, indicator of of being an effective supervisor. Um, The other things are like teaching skills and being organised, scaffolding learning, creating opportunities that match the student ability, that challenge them enough without freaking them out, being a good assessor, having understanding expectations. Providing quality
1: feedback. Yes. Um, was the other one. And and really role modelling what that professional role is. Um.
2: Yeah, and that's what we found that was different from the medical and nursing literature was um, a, an effective, a good clinical educator um, helped that student develop a sense of professional identity. Mm. Um, and I get we were talking about it, and we thought, well, you know, everybody knows what a doctor and nurse does, but they don't necessarily know what the allied health professions do. So, the clinical educator role modeling and advocating for their profession, mm-hmm. as well as for their patients and as well as for students, as well, being um, positive about student education.
0: So, do the students sort of come into a program then not? quite sure about the identity of the profession they're working towards and an effective clinical educator will role model what that profession does or what that professional should look like
2: yeah i i think um a lot of students they when they because what happens with with our placement is they go on placement uh, for the first couple of weeks of placement they'll come back to uni on friday so we have a chance to debrief and you know we'll say also what you know, what did you find? What was interesting? And every year the students say, we didn't know how much our profession or dieticians did. We didn't know how much influence they had in the ICU or talking to doctors and how much responsibility that they have. And um, they they underestimated the scope of,
1: of the job, mm. I guess. Mm. And similarly, when they're exposed to other settings, you know, they... I think, come into our courses, and, and I'd say this is probably true for all allied health, thinking that they're going to work in a hospital or they're going to work with patients, and then all of a sudden they're exposed in that clinical education environment to amazing role models that do other things. So they might do you know, policy work or they might work in local government and they go, oh, actually there's all this other stuff I could do um, and they start to challenge that identity that they've created of the thing that they might think that they'll do when they finish the, co- the course. Yeah.
2: Mm. One of the other things is about how you train people to be a good clinical educator. And I was having a chat with mm. with someone recently who I can't remember what profession they were from. might have been, might have been paramedicine. Anyway, it doesn't matter who. He And they were saying that, they'd read this paper and they said it's really interesting. I didn't realize that there were things about a clinical educator that made them effective. I thought that you just did it and, um, and and that was sort of interesting to me that that's what clinical educators out there might be thinking that there's you just do it and there's no
1: way of being better at it. Mm. I think the, the fact that we named and highlighted those intrinsic qualities, I think it was probably something unique about it. It's kind of been talked around, but I think just saying, you know, and I, I think um, uh, Brian Jolly said it in their very early paper on clinical supervision around there are just some people that just shouldn't be supervisors. And I think our review, you know, emphasises that, that if you don't have some of those intrinsic qualities, um, yeah, what is your role?
2: Yeah, because <clears throat> some people just aren't interested in supervising students. And I think, you know, to a degree, you can um, you can stimulate some enthusiasm in them. And like that example I gave earlier about the supervisor who at first was, you know, not that great, um, that she has gone on to be really advocating for students so I don't think that we can never say never say never Mm -hmm. but there are particular people who I have not seen any change and um and yeah I'm kind of wondering why are they supervisors Mm -hmm. is there something else at work that they could do and have somebody they might be a bit more because that's the other thing who how junior does how junior can someone be and be a good supervisor? Our review did not find anything about being junior or senior as being an advantage or disadvantage. Mm. It
1: just prompted me to think about another difference potentially in medicine is... I mean, I, I, I'm not saying that um, those intrinsic qualities are always there in medicine, but there is a um, accepted expectation, I believe, in medicine that you will supervise others and you will teach others... I'm not sure that that's agreed upon in allied health. And it's like when you ask allied health um, practitioners to supervise students, it may not be perceived as part of their job. And Although I, it is in their award. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I, but I, it's a cultural, yeah. potentially a cultural difference. And it's not to say that um, that means that all medical educators are amazing clinical educators and that they don't need to be developed around some of these things that are important, effective skills. But um, it's a a cultural difference, I think, between medicine and allied health, I would say. Mm I
0: want to take you just lastly to two of the conclusions out of the systematic review. How do we assess or how do you think we can assess the influence of supervision on student learning?
1: It's about the outcomes they produce. So I think we need to start shifting our mindsets around that it's just a one-way exchange, that the students will be plonked there and it's just take, take, take the whole time. So it's about recalibrating... Re- uh, the value that we perceive that students are getting out of placement and that for the organisation there will be value. So, you know, stories I've heard at recent conferences about, you know, patients after hip replacements going home two days earlier than they would have because the physio students got to see them. But, you know, from a waiting list perspective, they would have waited for extra days if the real physio had to come. And, you know, the stuff that students are able to achieve in public health for, for us, you know, would the organisations would take five years to do what they do in seven weeks because they just don't have those resources and capacity. So I think that's a way of remeasuring. So what is the organisational value potentially? Because ultimately, if there's organisational value, you would assume that that directly translates to some kind of health outcome for the community, the, you know, the organisation... Um, the patients.
2: Mm. I, I think though being able to attribute any outcome to the educator is going to be really difficult. and, and that goes the same for teaching all over. Like We've often have um, conversations about our um, student teaching evaluations and, um, and when they're low, Like, does that mean you're not a good teacher just because the student's not satisfied? Mm. Um, So, Because what we did find overwhelmingly, the way that people evaluate the effectiveness of clinical educators is by asking students to rate or rank Mm. or describe the qualities or ask other experts what they think, but whether that actually is good or not. But maybe something a bit more longitudinal of asking someone who has graduated and is working to reflect back on their university experience. So who were the people that helped shape you to become who you are now? Mm. And, you know, a lot of people, including myself, you know, sometimes at the time it's like, well, I didn't appreciate them at the time, but now I do. Now I'm in the real world with my real challenges and I can really see the benefit that that person had upon my development. Mm.
1: Yeah, and I think it, I think it's about embracing different research approaches, different, um, different uh, ways of thinking and knowing about outcomes, I think, and, you know, something like a realist kind of lens that actually looks at outcomes and causation in a very different kind of way um, is a way to go. And I think the other thing is actually asking the patients, mm-hmm. you know, um, and while there may not be an objective outcome around, you know, whether they can move more or they're eating better... Um, if they valued something about that student interaction, is that, is that a good outcome?
2: Yeah, and, and how did the educator support that? I mean, the patient won't know that. No. But I, like with all of these things, it's kind of like um, the program of assessment, I guess. Like there's kind of like we have to put all the, the pieces of the puzzle together mm. um, that, that surround that educator or the education to find out what's actually going on and what's making it good or bad.
0: I think that's a great place to finish up. So (laughs) thank you, Claire, and thank you, Simone. Thank you, Brett. Thank you, Brett. Thanks for listening to this episode of The MedEd Source, brought to you by the Melbourne Medical School. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to us. You can get in touch with us on our Twitter handle, at excite underscore UOM, contact us via email with the email address in the show notes and we look forward to speaking with you soon.